From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Revolut's brand new banking license, Barclays lets their customers switch off their spending, and Bingo Pay goes campus-wide at Copenhagen Business School, but when All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 279 of Fintech Insider. We are coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork, Devonshire Square. My name is Simon Taylor, and I'll be your host for today. And I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Leda Glipsis. How are you doing today, Leda? I'm great and happy to be here. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a nice day. I'm, I could do with it being a little bit warmer, but I'm feeling the fintech vibes. We've got some good stories this week. It's all Christmassy and crisp and lovely, and I had my first Christmas lunch of the season today, so I'm happy. Oh. And now I'm thinking about food and I'm going to have to do this podcast quickly because I want to eat. Um, and if uh, if you're listening and you have any questions for us, if you hear a new story you catch and you want us to cover, drop us an email, podcasts at 11fs.com or find us on social media. We're not alone today. As always, we're joined by some fantastic guests. Making her debut is Livia Benisti, who is the head of financial crime at Comply Advantage. How are you? I'm very well. Good to be here. And what does Comply Advantage do? Comply Advantage collects proprietary data on financial crime sources such as sanctions, AML, um, negative news, PEPs, etc. Politically exposed persons, excuse me, and then provides the functionality to screen against that data as well as monitor transactions. I was say, if you're collecting data on pets, that would be quite pet, different. Pet data. <laughs> there are a few of us that are pushing for that. Um, we're not quite there yet. We're does, going to stick to politically exposed. Does this person on sanctions list own a pet? Oh, Criminally active pets. Yeah. If they Ooh. have a dog, we'll let them slide. But if evil, it's a cat. Evil cats. They're a thing. Um, and of course, we're joined by Ryan Edwards Pritchard, who is the MD at Funding Options. How are you doing, sir? Good. Honoured to be back. Thank you for having me. Indeed. And thank you for joining us. Let's get on with the news. Alrighty, first story comes from Sky News, uh, news from the sky. Uh, British fintech unicorn Revolut wins a banking license. Uh, Revolut secured a European banking license from authorities in Lithuania, allowing them to start offering current accounts and loans across the EU from early next year. Their initial focus is apparently on Lithuania, where it has about 150,000 customers before expanding into larger markets, including the UK, France and Poland next year. However, it plans to offer full banking services in its home market could be delayed in the event of a disorderly Brexit if financial firms lose the right to serve retail customers on licenses granted in the rest of the EU. Revolut said it was preparing to apply for a separate UK banking license regardless of the outcome of Brexit and has previously said it will also seek a Luxembourg e-money license. Wow, is this a big deal? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's it's one step closer to what Nikolai's kind of uh, his his dream, his north star, which is basically the Amazon of banking, right? Yeah. You know, and this is the the door opening moment for them to then actually go and diversify what they're offering. So I think for them, they're looking to what try and move everybody off the prepay cards to the actual uh, actual accounts. Um, and that could be quite an interesting move to see happen over the next 12 months. It was, I mean, it was quite successful for Monzo. Yeah. You know, I think they managed to pull, what, 94% of the customers over. So, yeah, it's it's a big step, big move. Um, it can be done. Uh, it's just, uh, it's interesting that the license is from Lithuania in the first instance. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people, I think, picking up on the fact that it was Lithuania. So Lithuania have done a lot to try and bring in the fintech. They're really keen to to posit themselves as a, a strong regulatory presence in, in that in that space, but I think there will be some scepticism around the strength of the program there. I think generally, I mean, given what I do, sorry to be the kind of compliance geek here, but there is an an interesting point around, this is an interesting year for them to 
do this where they're going to have to completely uplift all of their onboarding, their KYC, their due diligence, their monitoring, coming off the back of what they experienced this year with the FCA, three compliance officers in a year. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle this. I'm sure they'll handle it in a, in a kind of unique tech-focused way, but it, it will be interesting. It's a pragmatic move, and, and Nikolai has gotten us used to pragmatic moves. Um, Lithuania positioned themselves to make it easy to sort of have a f- foot, footprint small and lithe and expand. It is a transactional relationship that may or may not be allowed to stand from an EU perspective because there are some challenges with with the program from a from an EU governance perspective that have already been voiced but from from Revolut's point of view they've done the obvious thing they've done the clever thing pursuing parallel licenses mm-hmm. in other jurisdictions particularly the UK makes imminent sense and, and across eastern europe you see a, a strong presence of migrant work um both in an internal and external a lot of companies base uh, sort of near shore development there there's a lot of people that sort of work in western europe from eastern europe and send money back home N- makes a lot of sense then that there would be a lot of users in lithuania and i think that's kind of one of the key things from you know is this regulatory arbitrage yes or no well no, there's a solid user base there. You can make a, a very solid argument to say, no, this is this is one of their core markets. It would make sense that maybe they got past the post there first. But this point about they also intend to seek licenses in the UK and Luxembourg, this could be the first of many for them. He makes a very interesting um, sort of business question, though, because once you have a, you're a bank in some jurisdictions but not necessarily in others in terms of how you choose to behave. Because technically, once you have the banking license in Lithuania, you could you could roll it out across the entire EEA right now. But it is clear that they don't intend to do that, and, and rightly so, because particularly with Brexit looming, quite a lot of people would be reluctant to, to make that move. But, but what does that mean in terms of running the business? You're going to have essentially two different businesses with different regulatory requirements, with different behaviors, adding strain to what has already been a a challenging growth period, um, they're taking on an extremely difficult internal governance challenge. They are, but they seem to be growing regardless, right? I mean, that was going to be my question. Do you think Brexit will screw them here? Or do you think that Brexit is just going to be another hurdle for a team that just keeps on marching forward, releasing new features and getting there somehow, some way? I think so. Um, If you look at the numbers right now, they're up to 1.8 million customers, six to 8,000 new ones a day diversifying geographically across Europe. Nikolai's been pretty staunch in terms of coming out in the, I think it was courts yesterday, just saying Brexit be damned. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. It doesn't I, we, sound we, like him at all. Definitely does not, doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah, I, I think for them, they'll just find it as, a, as something to try and get through. You know, the interesting one for me is actually going to be around deposit taking and their ability to do that and then actually go out and do what seems like they want to, which is go out and lend. So unless they actually find a way to find a wholesale lender, um, which wouldn't surprise me as well. So if they find a wholesale lender for them to then go out and use that for lending, that seems to be one of the key things that they're trying to unlock right now. Indeed. In a low interest rate environment, wholesale lending versus deposits, it's it's hard to say that if you're really, really good at buying wholesale lending and you've got the right treasury team, you could actually make that make sense. And so... Who, who knows what comes next? They seem to be pushing for growth. Well, there's there's talk about this £500 million uh, investment from SoftBank. Now, is that an investment or is that going to be used in terms of in different ways? So that's that, that, that's one to watch. Ooh, starting a rumour. I like it. <laughs> Interesting <laughs> speculation. Favourite kind of guest. There might be a very uh, mundane challenge ahead of them, though, in, in the sense that when the, the Monzo 
switch, switcheroo opportunity uh, emerged. Every user had a moment of, do I need another bank account? And then it was like, oh, what the hell? It's been a really good experience. I'll press the button and I'll do three things that will take about a minute and a half and off I go. Um, Revolut, with their growth and the challenges they've had, both from some of the procedural um, angles, but also from a pure... Um, like outages, um, support, there there may be quite a lot of reluctance to move away from the prepaid product just because of the the smoothness of the experience is not quite there yet. The question is, will they let people keep the option and how long for? Because it's going to be interesting. I think, sorry to interject that. I think given the issues that they've had around who they're issuing cards to, is it beyond the UK and how, how they've done that outside of the UK? Once they do start to uplift the standards to move on and to, up, to upgrade, I think that's how Monzo posited it at the time, to upgrade to the account. It will be interesting to see how many people choose to drop by the wayside or have to drop by the wayside. I think that's going to be indicative of just where their processes were in the first place. And the key thing for Revolut, I mean, I'm a Revolut user. I've lived in, in the US and Europe and the UK. So for me, it's perfect. I have everything there that I need and can input it and in, sorry, put cash in and get cash out very, very quickly. Um, the ease and flexibility of that is just works perfectly for me right now. Do I really want to have to go through a new experience even it would be relatively easy for me to do. Do I even want to do that? I, I have to be honest, I'm not even that sure. Now I've opened Monzo and I can, I've got Starling and I'm not getting the, the current account charge or the, sorry, the conversion charges. I'm unsure if I want to go through that process and it'll be interesting to see how many other people drop off when we don't really know how easy their onboarding would have been. In the I think the point. lesson from Monzo's success at that is that if you make it feel less like converting and some big thing and more like, hey, you should do this, hey, Hey, why don't you do this? Hey, it's just a button. And then when you do it, it's actually really painless. Can they build that that crossover? I think it's going to be a really interesting point. Um, but I'm I'm guessing they've thought about this a little bit. And, yeah, and I have the, un- the answer is they can, right? Yeah. Monzo did. Uh, it, it is possible. And and if anything, the, the fact that it has been done previously gives quite a lot of pointers as, to, as to how one, it can be done. It was done in one country and yes. instead of across many mm-hmm. markets. So there is a complexity here. And it was done with... Yes, they, they have the ability to make international payments, but it was really all cards driven. This is this is a more complex product, yep. more pieces to it, yep. um, more uh, offerings in terms of the savings. They've even got the cryptocurrency bit. There's like there's a lot more bits to the puzzle, but still, um, I wouldn't bet against them. All right, Our head uh, of marketing so is Australian, and she really had an issue when she was moving across on the Monzo. So the international element for her was a problem. And if the, you do have a, a more diverse market here, that could be an issue. I'll, I'll throw my hand in the ring. I'll convert. I'll convert my account the minute it's available. Alrighty, we'll we'll have to video that as like a sort of unboxing from <laughs> unboxing the conversion. Uh, all right, moving us on. Uh, there's a story from the BBC. Barclays customers can now switch off spending, um, which slightly misleading headline because I still need to buy things. But um, they've actually become the first UK high street bank to allow its customers to switch off certain types of spending on their debit cards. The idea to help vulnerable customers, particularly problem gamblers or those in serious debt. They can't block specific retailers, but account holders can now block on their own a number of spending categories, including groceries and supermarkets, restaurants, takeaways, pubs and bars, petrol stations, gambling, including websites, betting shops and lottery tickets, and premium premium rate websites, phone lines, TV voting competitions, and adult services. So real mix there. Yeah. Um, So I I thought two things when I saw this. One steal with pride like it's clearly the fintechs did this first but actually 
Barclays has gotten really, really good at getting that feature parity out. They did it with uh, the ability to freeze your card. They did it with the logos of the merchants. We've seen Lloyds Banking Group now has, uh, you can drill into a transaction and see the Google Maps location of where the transaction happened. I haven't seen this in action yet, but generally I applaud trying to up the level of capability in an app. Um, but I just wonder, you know, will we see this get expanded out? And is this just done off the Visa, MasterCard, Merchant category code? Or, and is it, or is it a more thought through experience? I don't mm. know if you guys have had a chance to. to yeah, I, I actually definitely chime with your point there. You know, they're, they're proving to be fast followers when it comes to actually mm -hmm. adopting what the challenger banks um, are actually bringing to market and seem to actually uh, gain adoption. I think for me, it's going to be, I mean, first of all, categorization of data and your ability to then actually use that to look at multiple different buying patterns is an interesting one. The other one is actually going to be around the other banks of so the CMA9. Are we going to see this just as mandatory that every single bank should be taking actually more care in terms of their customers, whether that's on the consumer side or the commercial side? So I think that's a, I hope there's going to be more adoption, but I think what Monzo and Starling started on this front is commendable, uh, you know, and, and looking at mental health in such a way is fantastic. A lot of it depends on the execution, right? So what Monzo mm. did and what we, what you guys even spoke about, that friction that they introduced into the yeah. process, there's not any, I haven't seen enough detail on this yet to understand exactly the functionality. Is the friction introduced in a way that really is going to have the impact that Monzo have had? I think that's the first thing. The second interesting point for me was, as you said, the other categories. So you've got your gambling, you've also got your general debt. Now, if debt, if you're trying to combat debt and overspending um, and, and poor spending habits, then the banks need to really take a good look at themselves in other areas such as credit, such as the cost of credit for people with poor credit ratings, which may not be because of bad behavior, but maybe because of a bad postcode or um, because they work in an industry where an employer doesn't pay on time all or the time. Or migrant workers. Or migrant workers or other reasons. So there's this poverty premium, what you get charged for having a poor credit rating. That's a huge input to to um, people's financial health. And this is only on debit cards for the moment, not on credit cards yet. I'm sure there are functionality issues with that. But if you really want to have that impact um, on people's spending, you need to tackle the credit issue, both dealing with the credit cards and not just debit, but also the credit issue of the cost of credit um, at that at the real problematic end of the scale. And I think it's commendable what they're doing, but a lot will depend on functionality and they really need to take this further and look at kind of the spirit of what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. For me, it's a B minus, right? It's it's like good, good, good copying, mm. well done, you've mm. done the right thing, just something missing in the implementation detail. Maybe they have done it and I need to see this and I, I could be wrong, so caveat, caveat. But the real thing about the friction for Monzo installing was the 48-hour cooldown period after you blocked the gambling transactions. That was the clever bit. It wasn't that you could toggle it on and off. And that, to me, is the nuance here, is that copying means doesn't mean I can understand it. I can copy anything, but can I understand it? And, and I think that's the, the, the art and the nuance. Absolutely agree. And I think the, the devil is the, in the detail there. The parental controls on yourself only work if... if they don't allow you to indulge and you're like oh this one time I will let myself um, but the reality is if you really want to go into the heart of it gambling is one and I love that Monzo and Starling have actually focused in one area because at least they can understand the mechanics of the behavior to your point Simon but mental health is a is a very powerful one and, and for mental health um, patients and, and care in the community patients 
credit cards would be relevant, right? It would be debit cards only. But then how can you tailor this functionality for people who have a very specific amount of available cash in the week, of yeah. vulnerable and prone to overspending? And it's not about what you permit. It's about staggering. It's about actually education through these controls that can be easy to access and gamified. They all have a phone why are we not seeing that? Um, I think that that would be harder to crack, but much more meaningful about society than me not being able to go to restaurants on a Tuesday night because I eat too much. Alayda, I was going to say, j- just to kind of follow on from that point, so with Barclays and exactly what you're saying there in terms of looking at behavioral patterns of spend, you know, you're talking about customers who, yes, you might block it on a Barclays, but then you're going to go onto your Barclays card. So like for me, it just seems like a no-brainer that you should, you should roll this across the board. You need to have that account aggregation view, surely. But I'm not going to tell off Barclays for starting small, right? No, yeah. yeah you know, like if you haven't rolled no, that out to your portfolio yet, that's fine. I mean, the advice I always give to every company that asks is start somewhere. And it doesn't matter that you haven't boiled the ocean yet, you'll get there. Um, but you're not going to do it with a candle. You need to prove that the principle works first. You've got to start small. So starting small is a good thing. But if you look at the screenshot that comes from the BBC website, and if you're listening, um, go to uh, Barclays customers can now switch off spending, um, Google that particular headline. The screenshot, like it's not really clear where merchant control is in the top navigation. Um, the, The navigation for itself just appears to be a couple of toggles. Like it feels rushed. Yeah. It feels rushed. Well done for doing it. But this feels like somebody seen you when, why have they done that? I want one of those. I, we should have this too. This is the right thing to do. How quickly can we get it in? It became red hot um, issue to get it in. They got it done. They got it over line. Well done, guys. But like, let's keep going on this. Uh, let's keep iterating on it. Um, because I... I I'm always going to be like, that's what FinTech Insider is here to do. It's to challenge and cajole and talk about what could be done better. But then they're the first of the big banks to do this. So they should get a round of applause for that, I think. They should, they but should the really- question then becomes, why did you do it? Did you do it for feature parity so that the other kids wouldn't have the shiny saw you don't have? Or are you actually trying to crack a real problem, societal or, or otherwise, in which case we should expect to see quite a lot more? Indeed, indeed. Alrighty, next story. Um, speaking of uh, what you were talking about a moment ago, Olivia, in terms of uh, debt problems, apparently fintech is driving per- rising personal debt levels in four charts. And we have briefly covered this before, but this comes from Tearsheet Online. Uh, so it's a new study that came out. Um, this uh, story comes from December the 7th. And apparently fintech is moving millennials from credit cards to personal loans. That's resulted in more but smaller loans. Uh, Compared to previous generations, they're more likely to take out these loans. Uh, And fintech firms originated 36% of all personal loans last year, compared to 1% in 2010, which is a big chunk of the personal loans market. Um, Millennials have fewer credit cards and carry lower balances than the previous generation. Um, They may not like to use credit cards, but that doesn't mean they're averse to using credit. In fact, they prefer to use short-term loans to pay for things like weddings and moving costs. Whilst they may be seeking more loans, millennials are taking out the average of twelve thousand dollars in 2017 uh, and ten thousand dollars in 2018. And so, for this study, let's get into methodology because you know I'm a stickler for this stuff. Lending Point analyzed the loan applications of individuals to whom the company extended personal loans in 27 and 2018. A total of sixty-five thousand six hundred and twenty-six loans, decent sample size, but it was all their own customers. 
Bit of self-selection there, right? Like the yeah. ones that have already exactly. chosen to look for a loan are naturally going to be the ones that may not already be using credit cards. And, and um, shout out to um, the producers of Fintech Insider. I don't know if it was Donna or Laura, but it was Laura. Nice one. Laura pointed to herself. But this, <laughs> this no point here, which is uh, it's a misleading headline because it makes it sound like the Fintech itself is causing the debt. When it appears to be the opposite, Fintech is helping millennials manage their debt and actually have less of it. So if it said millennials are in less debt and the debt they do take is for a specific purpose and over a specific period of time, everyone would kind of ignore the article. But isn't that a good thing? It is. It just, it does feel like a clickbait headline, sensationalizing the story that isn't actually there. I think the point you just mentioned there is absolutely spot on. It's it's about understanding the customer journey. And it's actually understanding about how do you create frictionless finance, you know, and how do you actually get people through that shopping cart experience? You know, they've got a job to be done and whatever else it is that they're wanting to buy, whether it's something like a car or pay for the wedding, it's about how can you get finance to them so that they can actually pay it off over a sensible amount of time rather than taking out a big chunky loan. And you see Klarna and a firm in the US and, and businesses like that kind of mm. moving in this direction with this point-of-sale lending where uh, it's for that thing. Yeah. And, and actually, that helps me with my mental accounting. That really helps me understand my worldview a lot better. If you look at a lot of the customer research of the last couple of years, people really like that mental accounting to be more gut feel and to be more direct rather than this uh, this limitless credit card thing that feels risky that I don't really trust. Mm. Um, so that kind of uh, differential is, is really, really important, I think, for customers. It really falls into the same bucket of, of lazy research we've seen before and it, it, they all seem to, to be very similar in that they like to hate on millennials. Yeah. They like to try and find a, a weird spin on data that mostly points in a different direction, but also they don't contextualize any of the information. And there was, there was a time when getting credit cards was easier than getting a loan. Yeah. Therefore, people who needed breathing space at the end of the month gravitated to what the, the thing that was not necessarily cheaper but accessible because we know that time and time again ease and lack of shame is what drives people to make financial choices. So the fact that people can now manage their finances differently, don't feel like they're on a slippery slope to to debt and all the rest of it, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? We don't have comparative data on how millennials, as if that's a representative tag, manage credit cards when they use them. It, it, is, it is really worrying, though, that's this sort of really sloppy research keeps mm. coming out. I asked all my friends if they like me, and they all like me. Therefore, 100% of the people researched like me. Yay. Yeah, we have no data on, on what that loan, what those loans look like. You know, they say they're being used for everything from a wedding to everyday personal expenses. Well, 10,000 average loan size for everyday personal expenses is concerning as well. So there's just inconsistencies there. They have that a I different don't... lifestyle to yeah. us. <laughs> so if you're writing headlines or you're doing some research as mm. uh, fintechs out there and banks out there, be warned. We will challenge your methodology. <laughs> you have to question, though, and I almost want um, the, the chaps to, to, to write back and explain this to us. because they Explain yourself. Well, not, not in that sense, but like, talk me through this. Because this is their research, and yet it almost sounds like it's a bad thing. Yes. So it's actually the opposite of I asked all my friends if they're my friends. It, it's a case of we looked at the product we offer, and now we will tell you that most people use it instead of the competition but we'll make it sound like it's not a good thing I think yeah. that's actually something to do with the the article talking about it if you go to lending point themselves to their to their website and how they talk about it it, it has a slightly different spin it has on a it. slightly more positive spin but they still talk about 
uh, a loan as if it is debt and a credit card as if it is not. Whereas actually mechanically and in any in any manner that matters, the minute you don't pay off your balance, it, it no, it's, it's debt. debt exactly yeah. it behaves exactly the same way. So they make that false distinction even in their own website. Although I totally take your point, it is much more uplifting. It's like yay, we're great that um, people are moving away from credit to debt, and it's like. It's so, uh, thing. The, the point that Simon made before those is an interesting one. So the only thing that I'd, for me that kind of brings through this thought process is point of sale solutions are now huge both on the consumer side and they are growing obviously on the commercial side as well. Now, where does this from a consumer data sharing perspective, you know, if we're seeing more and more adoption of these different solutions across, you know, across the markets, we need a, and thank God, obviously, Open Bank and BSD do is here, is somebody coming in to basically try and aggregate that viewpoint to actually have a sensible look at affordability at an individual level. Now, I think Affordability a is a huge question for point of sale, right? Because everybody's laddering, everybody's stacking. It is. And most of the point of sale players are doing uh, soft credit checks. Mm. They're doing affordability by trying to build a relationship with you it's guesswork they haven't done KYC when you've bought the thing especially if you've bought the thing that's less than a thousand dollars so there, there's a lot of guesswork going on here and this is why I think you've seen headlines in the BBC and mm. the Telegraph and elsewhere saying you know people may end up in trouble with these point-of-sale lenders um, and and there's a real risk of that that is the risk but Mm. I also think if I can sort of drop a cookie on your laptop and I can build a profile about you and I can connect with open banking, I've got a far richer view about you than most high street banks do. And the way most high street banks do affordability checks is to ask the basic same set of questions they asked 30 years ago. And do they really have a good view of your affordability or do they ask the questions that of affordability that was the best answer 30 years ago but isn't the best answer now? So, yeah. so I think... I want to just couch that sort of, yes, there's a risk there, but I'd also say that a firm in the US have done really, really well at being data-driven mm. in how they understand uh, what their customers are doing, which is why their default rate is 126% lower than the market average. There's an interesting FT article that made me think, just thinking about how um, these lenders are viewed generally by the public. Um, and there was part of the FT article, the, the paragraph called Rebranding Debt, and it talked about a YouGov poll talking about how uh, millennials and young people were afraid of debt and found the concept of being in debt stressful, but then went on to Klarna to talk about how they think about brand messaging, and it's all about taking the customer on, a, on an emotional journey. That's yes. the actual words used. And you do start to think, well, okay, so you've got this misleading headline that fintech is leading millennials into debt, but when you start to talk to a lender talking about taking people on an emotional journey and rebranding debt and viewing it as this new thing, that does concern me a little bit. It does make me wonder actually what considerations are going into this when you take on a point of sale loan. Yeah. Are you really aware of what you're doing? So this is the double-edged sword with debt is debt is a great way to make money and uh, the the sort of the Faustian bargain of like, like I can offer you something that might be really helpful in your life but I make more money if I'm less helpful to you. It's, so it's, you really are in, in ethical territory at that point and I think the way uh, a lot of organizations have won credibility in the lending space is by having transparency about how they operate, transparency in their pricing, really clear terms that people understand that might not actually be the cheapest in the market but people have a level of comfort that they know what they're doing and the other thing is 
Um, you see um, so, uh, retailers like very.co.uk, um, they have a take three product where you can split the cost of, of something you bought over three months. But they do it, uh, the cycle time is every 28 days. So I have to pay every 28 days, not every month. So if I miss a payment, suddenly they backdate the APR and make me pay the APR for the entirety plus. Yeah, so there's these predatory tactics out there that are still being done. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. But then you've got the affirms and the Klarna who don't do that. If you fall outside that pattern, you know, so it's just not being an asshole is, is the key here, right? As, as always the case. It's funny how it keeps coming up. God damn it. Just that. don't be an asshole. Just don't be an asshole, people. All right, um, moving us on. Um, story comes from banking tech. Uh, Metro Bank keeps on digital, whatever that means, uh, with international payments. So they're adding international payments through personal and business accounts via its mobile app. Uh, the service enables customers to make same-day SWIFT and uh, SEPA, single Europe payments area, uh, payments in euros, US dollars and sterlings. And the international payments are integrated alongside the app's domestic payments functionality. I didn't know Metro didn't do international payments. That's what I got from this headline. Was anybody else? Is that brand new information to anybody else? Like, I thought you could do that. Anyway, um, let's hear from Alex Park, who's Metro Bank's Director of Digital, to tell us more. So we're adding international payments into our mobile app. This is something which customers have been asking for. We've done quite a lot of research around this. So this is about us giving customers more choice at Metro and you know delivering tangible services you know into into the mobile app that they can use. So the proposition we're going out with um, is for international payments. It will cover um, US dollars, sterling, and euros to start with, which broadly covers about thirty-seven different countries. So that's what we'll roll out initially. The plan would be that over time we will add more currencies into uh, the mobile app, you know, as as we see fit, particularly led by you know what the customer wants. And when you do that, it definitely gets a bit more complex. So where we started, which is broadly you know separate area payments, so European Union, that's generally relatively straightforward in terms of rules and regulations. When you start sending money to different countries, whether it be India or China or South Africa, there's different rules and regulations which may or may not complicate you know the user experience. So I think that's where we'll go next. We'll look at different currencies, whether that's the Scandies, whether that's you know Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, India, uh, and TBC. But, you know, that, that's a challenge that we're keen to take on. And hopefully we can do that in a way which takes out the complexity of the customer and just, you know, focuses on them getting the task complete, which is sending money, which ought to be quite simple. And that's, that's what we're striving for. Exciting news there from uh, Metro Bank. What are the thoughts on this one? It is a great example of customer-led product development. You know, and, and, and Fairness Metro, actually, if you look at their approach, you know, they are trying to do something different to the challenge banks. They're very proud about the fact that they, you know, they try and offer something different in terms of that high street approach. It's obviously a bit of a surprise that this hasn't been there for longer. Uh, but yeah, m- maybe this is their way of actually challenging the international money transfer businesses that are out there in an attempt to actually grow fast, um, you know, but doing it through their existing customer base. So I, I think there's an element of we're not representative of the general public in any way, shape or form, right? The fact that we get super excited about function-specific apps and we will go and be actively multi-banked because we're geeking out like crazy about this is not representative of of the average user. So there is a a scenario that says a a really healthy chunk of the 
consumer population would actually not vote with their feet, provided their current provider is decent and the experiences are okay. Mm. Especially if they're not actively comparing, you know what I mean? So this is a great move of feature parity where it matters because mm. chances are a very large percentage of the population will not actively s- seek out the best rate or the slickest experience provided they don't feel shafted or they don't feel that the experience is terrible. And in, in, in that chunk of the population, more numerous and representative than the people we hang out with, having these features even slightly late to the party, in a fairly slick and caring way that is not charged too much, is great and it is enough. And and I think Metro Bank are, unlike the Monzos and the Starlings and the Revoluts that are actually appealing to our demographic plus, um, Metro never did. They went for my mum and, and people who are not fascinated by fintech. And I think they're doing a great job of it. But, I yeah, think that's get, a really getting good the basics point. right. Sorry. Oh, no, so I think that's a really good point. I think when I was reading the article, like, they talk about how you can make swift payments, SEPA payments, decide who pays the charges, and all you need to do is enter someone's IBAN, but you can also put in their account number. Now, if we're talking about people that aren't necessarily so financially savvy, like I know what those things are, and I don't want to be dealing with that. I just want to be able true. to go find someone's phone number or, at worst, their account number and send them some cash. So I completely agree with your point. I'm just thinking on execution. I mean, I don't, I haven't looked at it, so I don't, in detail, I don't know how visible those options are to the client I, I couldn't tell from the article but if that is being presented to, to the customer that's also a little bit much but the reality is um, unless you are doing international payments using um, a Revolut with another Revolut user you need you need that information even with the challenges you're absolutely right but we haven't cracked the ease of access across international phone numbers so and it's a pain and um I live in fear of mistyping those endlessly long numbers. You put your finger on the screen and go, is that seven ones or eight fat ones? Thumbs. You don't want fat thumbs in that situation. The tiny little hands. You're in, you're in luck. I've got big fat ones, unfortunately. <laughs> Lots of mistakes. So I, lots I of people are going to be getting random amounts of funds from Ryan. <laughs> Ryan sent me £7,000. Thank you, Ryan. I just had a look at the um, sort of the Q1 uh, report. I couldn't find the later quarters um, from Metro as well. This is a profitable and growing bank. Yeah. This is a bank that's not playing to the fintech community, uh, and they are doing well in the UK. So credit to them. You know, they're winning awards left, right, and center from MoneyNet and MoneyWise. And uh, this is something that's not easy to do. Uh, they're growing their deposit base. They're growing their lending base. Their uh, profit uh, after tax is up 400% over the year before it. They're in profit. They're growing. Uh, and, they, and customers seem to love what they're doing. So credit to them. Um, all right. I'm going to move us on. Uh, next story comes from the FT.com and uh, HSBC are going to launch a robo-advisor. It's called My Investment, an online platform. But <laughs> Sorry. Um, so HSBC estimates that uh, My Investment could be used by 2.87 million of its existing retail customers. And the advice will be given based on an investor's answers to questions about their finances. Uh, it will recommend one of their funds. Uh, cautious conservatives are balanced or dynamic. Uh, process can be done by a phone or tablet, uh, and ninety percent of the they say that ninety percent of their interactions are now done through their digital channels. So it's <clears> obvious <throat> that they needed to move um, their sort of robo advice uh, m- to. Did you, hear, did you hear the sound I made, or do I need to make it again? Make it again. Um, <laughs> those of you who haven't been on the show with us before, I'm an HSBC customer, and I get really upset with these things. Um, I understand why they're trying to do it, although robo-advisory has not worked out for many of the big players, Goldman excluded, and and what they did Mm -hmm. 
worked well for, for very specific reasons, right? They didn't try to overgame it. They, they, they slapped a very attractive profitability angle to it and all the rest of it. Um, the first question, and, and, and I know that from a compliance perspective, you can't pull the information in, but the whole point of seamlessness is that if you're already their customer, they should know a lot of this stuff about it. I recently decided against my better judgment to apply for an HSBC credit card. I have been a customer of theirs for over 20 years. My salary gets paid into the HSBC account. They ask me for salary slips. I have refused to provide them and I don't have a credit card. So my my issue is that if you're going to provide a robo-advisor, the clue's in the name, if you want me to fill in essentially a paper questionnaire turned digital but not, what's robo about it? When you already chances are, because they will not provide secondary investment products to non-customers the of same course. way. You already know enough about me to actually do a lot a lot of this seamlessly, provided I consent to being sent recommendations or I consent to an advisory session. Um, so by all means, I, I love the, the, the firewall, the fact that they don't pull that data in without your consent, but I question why we even bother calling it robo if I have to fill in a form? Well, I just want to make a plea to anybody designing a digital service. Don't make me fill in a form that is the same thing a bank teller would do for me. That's not digital. That's digitizing what happens in a branch. I'm a customer. I'm not your employee. Do your own work. Do digital well. Uh, and that's really frustrating across the board. Um, and when they say the um, it'll be available from as little as £1,000 to invest at an annual charge of 0.5%, followed by fees of 0.46%, that ain't cheap. <laughs> Bargain. What are you on about? Um, go, look at, go look at Nutmeg. Go look at Wealthify. Go look at some of the other fees in the market. Uh, I mean, I know they're playing to their existing customer base and they're giving their existing customer base uh, a, another digital platform. So they'll bring some across. But I think there's competition out there now. Uh, and I think this, frankly, feels lazy. I think what I found interesting, what I wanted to, to think about was where are their services um, that we would go outside of our bank for or prefer to go outside of our bank for versus stay within our bank? And I think partly the benefit of staying within your bank is what Lady was talking about, which is you should have all my information there, you should have all my data, you should be able to leverage it. And in the US, between robo-advisors and banks, we've seen a lot of coming together, a lot more than we have here previously. So you had Acorns has a debit card, um, Wealthfront are looking at checking and savings. I'd be shocked if Betterment weren't or haven't been for a while. Stash have savings and checkings um, and a lot of Robin banks are trying to... Yeah, a lot of banks are also trying now partnering, so Fifth Bank, Fifth Third Bank Corp and Citizens Bank partnering with these providers. So why would we be more inclined to go for an FX service outside of our bank but keep robo-advice within the bank? And I think partly that is you should have access to all of my history, so you should be able to do it better. Um, and also it might have something to do with a lot of surveys that showed um, amongst millennials um, that even for robo-advice, they still would prefer that human touch. And I don't know whether people feel that in their relationship with their bank. They think, maybe not a human touch, but they feel slightly more connected to a bank than they do a completely separate digital app. So they might be more inclined to stay within their bank for this stuff. Um, I think it's I about, know. yeah, hybrid model though. So I think, yeah, I think there is always going to be a place for human interaction in any advice sector. Um, depending on the complexity of advice obviously needed but I feel like a digital offering can definitely support a larger part of the population so making an advice accessible to many makes sense 
but the execution of it, I would definitely agree yeah, with. Don't Labour. get me wrong. Exactly. The, there's a need here in the market, mm. and there's there's oh my god, are there jobs to be done that are poorly served yep. here without question? And that's what frustrates me is there's so much you could do here, and there's there's a real I think attempt now by many to start to look at you know so what what constitutes advice and what can machines start to do and what can robo really do in terms of advice because at the moment it's uh, I fill in a form and you put me into a portfolio there's nothing robo about that and that's not advice we've also got the compliance you know implications of that so are you doing guidance or are you doing advice and to what extent can you do a callback to that advice that's HSBC's homework right yeah alrighty um, I'm going to push us to a very quick break and we'll be back shortly how can Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university it must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Uh, the nominations for the British Bank Awards 2019 have been released, and for the first time, the awards will have categories for vendors, and one of them is... Consultancy of the year. Do you know any consultancies, right? I might know a, a, a consultancy with a few levens in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would maybe a challenger consultancy. A challenger consultancy. Yeah, that's grown question. at a rate of knots. It's done a shitload of stuff. Twenty eighteen. Yeah. yeah, we've been we've been at some stuff. That's for sure. Um, and last year, the awards saw the likes of Starling Bank, Money Farm, Bird, Wise Alpha. Uh, they all got great accolades, and we'd love to join them. You don't want us to be left out, do you? I'd hate that. Let's get let's get the votes in. Let's, that wouldn't let's make do us this. sad. If you love the work we do at 11FS, we'd love your vote. Head to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, forward slash 11FS 2019 to put our name in. Can I vote twice? I mean, you can give it a go. Get your mum to vote. I, I've already asked her. Uh, she struggled with her phone. She's got a new phone. Um, but if you want to make up that vote for my mum, uh, you can go to bit.ly forward slash 11FS 2019. Sound good? Alrighty, on with the show. All right, next story. Well... It's a bit of news, really. Funding options have bagged a prize from the CMA. What prize did you get, Ryan? Uh, so we uh, won the Nesta Open Up Challenge, uh, along with a couple of... There, there was a couple winners, so there was actually five of us in total. Um, but yeah, so this was, um, this was a, a prize that, in fact, it was phase two. So phase one was 2017. Uh, I think there was 20 participants, and then there was, again, there was 10 actual winners of that one. Our friends over at Bud, who you, you guys know very well, there's Fluidly, I Walker, and a number of others uh, in that part. Um, and that one, that part of the challenge was, it was more of a kind of like, 
I'd say R&D focus. Um, and then the phase two is actually this year. Um, and yeah, we the whole idea behind it was a £5 million prize fund. Um, and it was all about coming up with uh, new solutions, innovative solutions to help support uh, small business owners. That's it. Indeed. So what did you do to win the prize? Did you just like show up and go, we help small businesses or did you do a thing? I mean, pretty much that. We just came out and said, you know, we help the small walk tall. That's what we're all about. Not quite. I love that. I help the small walk tall. We help tall. the small walk tall. Uh, for those who can't see what we're doing right now. I will, I'll get you one. I can there is a coffee cup that says help the small walk tall. There's some really good fonts involved. Producer Petra is taking a photo. If you follow us on Fintech Insider, um, we will make sure we get those pictures up there. I desperately want one of those. I will get you a reusable. I've got to say, he has promised on air. Indeed. He now we has to deliver. To okay. Do I'll, I get one too? I'll okay. deliver you. I'll deliver them as a Christmas present to you all. Yay. So they'll, they're coming. Back to the question though. So it wasn't all about clever branding. Uh, so what we actually built was a way for small business owners uh, utilizing open banking to compare uh, loan products from their current account, from their current bank, I should say, uh, to alternative finance lenders. So as everybody knows, um, I say everybody knows, so 90% of small business owners, their first port of call when they're looking for a loan is their bank. Now, very few of them are actually bank ready to get a loan. So that's when they go, then go out to the alternative finance market or some of them stop the journey altogether there. So um, this was an instance where we actually built a journey where actually customers could actually uh, compare their own bank account uh, lending solutions as well as ones from the alternative finance market as seamlessly and smoothly as possible. Seamlessly and smooth. And seamlessly and smoothly, I'm going to move us to the next story. And this one comes from TechCrunch. Uh, Fintech startup Plaid uh, has raised more than $250 million at a 2.65 billion dollar valuation. So this fundraising comes from uh, the Mary Mika-led Kleiner Perkins Fund, but other investors include, of course, Andreessen Horowitz, Goldman Sachs, Spark Capital. And if you're not familiar with Plaid, it allows companies to create financial service apps without having to hire their own team of engineers to build out the tools that connect it to the bank accounts. Basically, Think Truelair, yep. think Bud, think all, uh, think Rails Bank, but on a much bigger scale in the US. And they uh, actually uh, already support a number of third-party applications like Venmo, Robinhood, Coinbase, Acorns, Lending Club. And they're integrated with more than 10,000 banks in the US and uh, across California, of course. The new funding will be used to continue to expanding the team in San Francisco, Salt Lake, and New York. And their co-founder said, we want everyone uh, to have these simple, straightforward, digitally enabled financial lives. And this means supporting these tech innovators in the space and the large incumbents. We want to be able to help them create great consumer financial experiences so consumers can live financial lives. My goodness, what a round that is. Mary Mika, famed for internet trend reports, uh, her firm going really big on this. Uh, she tends to, to call it right. This is, this is a big, big moment for open banking in my mind. It's a huge valuation. Um, they're a really exciting company. It's been really interesting one to watch. So, you know, originally it was kind of the Yodley play and they, they were authenticating bank accounts by using this kind of functionality. But I think at the time they were criticised for not being developer-focused enough, that the developer journey wasn't that great. So Played came in um, and just won it by doing a better experience and also allowing greater functionality than just the the account authentication. Yes. Um, I think it's really interesting to watch. The thing that I'm interested in is it's a big valuation for expansion domestically. I mean, they went to Canada earlier this year, but otherwise you would you would assume there's going to be some international element to it um, in that growth. 
But what interests me, and I don't know the extent to which they do API versus screen scraping. So they said that they're integrated with 10,000 banks. Does that mean via API? Because if they are screen scraping, and I can't find, I'm not sure, I don't know. I would imagine there's some screen scraping in there. That's been banned with the, the new PSD2 standards coming out next September in Europe. What will that mean? I'm sure that they have the API functionality, but that's going to have to be a much bigger play. I think it almost doesn't matter for the US market because when you said it, they've focused on the developer experience. A light bulb went off for me and I was like, ah, that's the valuation. Stripe.com, 20 billion valuation, great developer experience. If you become that thing that developers use first to do a thing, the game's yours. Uh, game set and match. And it almost doesn't matter if they're using screen scraping behind the scenes because from a consumer standpoint, from a developer standpoint, they've hidden that. They've made it look beautiful. This is really great lipstick on a pig that somehow made the pig look beautiful. Until <laughs> they don't it. hide it anymore. And the, you know, the issue with data breaches, or it's not a data breach, but the, the phishing and fraud um, numbers do go up when you're talking, or supposedly go up when you're talking about screen scraping versus the APIs. So to, to the extent that it can be hidden, if it maybe they're not doing it. I, I, I mean, know, ch- chances are they, they, they might. Are. And, and you raise a good point. I, I, those of you who have me heard me on the show before, you know, I, I don't get excited about valuation stories. I think they're great for the people involved and depending on the use of funds, really great for growth, but they very often distract us from the thing that the business does. In this case, I'm quite excited about the thing that the business does because there is a real gap in the market for focus on the developer experience to actually create accessibility. To your point, Livia, I would love if that money was directed to bringing them to us. Yes. Our market in Europe would like a little bit of liveliness there, but if your concern proves to be right, then they would need to do things very differently this to be is, compliant. This is so indicative of the mm. US market in that when entrepreneurs get something working and the big investors get behind it, it's completely different. And so you've got the European approach of we'll march everybody together through regulation, which yep. has so far conspired to achieve very little. And, mm. and, and it it's was pointing us in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, it was well-intentioned, but eh, really? Come on. I mean, Yolt, an exception. Yolt have done really well. Uh, and the you know that you do have open banking in the UK, mm-hmm. but is it has it caught fire? No, I don't think it has. I think it's been a bit of a disappointment. It's a slow burn, but it's pointing us in the right direction. It is. It's but, interesting. But it's missing this. Yeah, they've yeah. they've seen they've, they've clearly seen a gap in the market, and that go to market strategy in terms of focusing on the developers is yeah is fantastic. So you know, I think it's then going to come down to how do they then get it into the users themselves. I think from what I could tell with regards to their growth strategy, you know, a lot of the funds they're raising is down to hiring, you know, so they're growing aggressively. So I do hope they come over. I think it's good in terms of competition as well. You know, yes, Trulay is doing a fantastic job. Yul as well is doing a fantastic job. But it doesn't hurt to have somebody coming in that's looking at it from a slightly different lens, which is not obviously regulatory, but actually more about the opportunity. Two things strike me is, is one, where we see the, the challenge of brands from the US, uh, like Finn by Chase, uh, mm. Marcus by Goldman, start to leverage this in some way to offer different services. Will you see a Yolt-like play coming from the from the sort of the challenger brands and all the big banks? Will they grasp this and start to use that platform, or will you see the likes of Chime and some of the smaller organisations, or even uh, Aslo from BBVA or uh, Den- Denzian from BBVA? These sort of like challenger brands um, that are challenger banks almost in in a sense start to really use this and create that account aggregation thing that you've seen be quite successful with the likes of Plum, even Tandem are trying it and you're seeing it now with obviously Yolt and many others. Like that does seem to have been quite popular. 
people want that financial control center. I don't know, and this may be my ignorance of the U.S. market, that we've really seen that model take up take root yet. T- typically, if you look at their users uh, and their big customers, it's you know it's Venmo to do payments, it's uh, Robinhood, it's it's not that account aggregation piece and the data piece. So maybe there's an opportunity there. Yeah, the the, the account aggregation though is is an interesting one. So there is definitely some hurdles to overcome. So over. Uh, during the summer, in fact, Capital One came out saying that they're going to limit how much account data is going to actually flow uh, to third-party apps like Played. So, uh, you know, data sharing is always—I guess it's all—you know—it's it's always going to be a controversial point because it's all about harmonisation. But the path in front isn't exactly clear. So we're going to see this develop over time. Alrighty, let's move to the next story. Uh, this one comes from Reuters, and SoftBank have apparently done an IPO uh, to reach $23.5 billion after an extra share sale. Um, so they're set to raise this uh, in Japan's biggest ever IPO. The share, si- share sale was widely regarded as finalizing the group's transition from domestic telco into monolithic global tech investor. Um, it also said it will sell extra shares and set aside uh, for excess demand, taking the total just shy of the record $25 billion raised by Alibaba, uh, of which it also owns a 30% share. An early investment in Alibaba, I believe, is the source of most of its capital. Um, SoftBank uh, offered nearly $2 billion in shares for the sale and allocated 80% of the sale for domestic retail investors. Um, the group, which controls the world's biggest tech private equity fund at nearly $100 billion, will use the proceeds to invest in startups which have ranged from uh, tiny games makers to Uber, uh, including WeWork as well. Uh, and they're also saying they're pursuing an unprecedented marketing campaign, including what's believed to be Japan's first TV adverts for a private firm's IPO. So there's something interesting about pushing IPOs at consumers here. What, in terms uh, of what, getting the back in and investment? In- or just doing a TV ad for an IPO. Wow, okay. Like, have you ever seen a TV ad for an IPO? I mean, uh, we had it with the telcos and the utilities companies in the UK, like British Gas in the 80s. So I think the only time I've seen, so there was one for a crypto exchange with a funny money, as you'd say. Um, Coin Square, and I think that was, but I think that so that was over the summer, and that was as they were building up to an IPO. But I think that might have been more about user acquisition and trying to basically fluff some of the unit economics in terms of um, customer growth, but not specifically down that route. No, interesting one to watch. Alrighty, next story. Um, story comes for extra. Barclaycard have joined forces with Evernum on self-sovereign identity. They want to make passwords a thing of the past, and as such, they've uh, worked with Evernum uh, to enable people to securely store information about their digital identity under their own individual self-control so that they can share a proof of who they are for life with various organizations without sharing the underlying data, and which has the potential to make the lives of users far easier, far more safe, and replace those usernames and passwords and the form filling that you have to do when we were talking about earlier. Um, and so what they've done is they're using DLT, Distributed Ledger Tech, to remove the need for those centralized silos and ensure that you own your identity. And they're running a 12-month accelerator which gives organizations access to the tools, advice, and ecosystems to let them experiment with self-sovereign identity. We spoke to the Evanim MD, Andy Tobin, to find out more. Evanim's been working with the Barclays Group for over two years now. Uh, They were amongst the first organizations to uh, recognize the potential of self-sovereign identity, and that partnership has uh, has grown and grown and um, we haven't been able to announce some of the earlier things we were doing. This is the first project we have announced. And um, 
it's really testament to the uh, the innovation group at Barclay Card who recognised the potential for streamlining the way digital business and uh, e-commerce will work uh, once you can get rid of the friction that's introduced by having to verify everyone's identity every time you do anything. So Evanim launched its accelerator program really in response to market demand. Uh, we were seeing companies around the world wanting to find out more about self-sovereign identity and sovereign in particular. And we set the accelerator up as a way to provide a safe and collaborative place for organizations to cooperate with each other. So it's a really mixed group. And what's in common that they all have in common actually is, is the need to realize very quickly the ideas they have, the use cases they have for solving the identity and, and user verification problems that they, uh, they're struggling with. We're seeing more organizations realizing the potential for self-sovereign identity, and we're seeing the Accelerator as an ideal place for them to come and experiment and work with each other. Uh, more and more, we're seeing ecosystems evolve in countries or in um, particular market sectors where uh, those organizations in those ecosystems want to cooperate with each other but not necessarily have commercial relationships with each other. So from that perspective, uh, the Accelerator provides a really ideal place uh, for those organisations to work together. Thank you very much to Andy Tobin. Any thoughts on this one for the room? Um, I was in China a couple of months ago at the Financial Action Task Force um, plenary, and one of the key topics, they were talking about virtual currencies, and, and but one of the other key topics was digital identity. And there's just a lot of skepticism and suspicion around the notion of self-sovereign identity we're talking about the end source that authenticates um identity and from what i understand that hasn't really been sorted out in this case in terms of no i think it has i think people just haven't i think the subject is early but i think also these guys are saying something that's so radically weird that people Mm. are like wait so the world is upside down and i'm like yeah if you're standing in australia it is but it feels normal and they're like wait what you know it's like it's it's saying the world is round to a flat earther it's so fundamentally different because the legal definition of what identity is right now and what we've known has been when an organization points at you and says that's who you are this is your name i have given you your identity now that creates a whole host of problems of course because when they do that, if they're not there all of the time, everywhere you go, there's no way to check with them. So they have to give you something physical, like a piece of paper or some token that has to follow you around. If they get hacked, then all of your identity is hacked. So if I distribute that identity, if I say that I continue to be me, I'm I'm pretty certain I'm still me. Um, I've still got my fingerprint. I've still got my voice. I still do the same things I do every day then why not look at that pattern and behavior and analysis and let me prove that I am me by being consistently me rather than just issuing me a piece of paper that says I am me. Now, and make that fit. Now, making that fit the legal definition is hard, but it, fundamentally, that is far more distributed and far more secure over the long term. It's probably enough to do a single podcast on, which is why we covered it on the Digital uh, Identity Insights Show, which was episode 256. That was a, that was a beautiful little narrative there, Simon. I actually liked it. And I, I'm, I was building up to disagree, and now I feel terrible because that was actually really, really well said. But, m- but my, my concern with this, and I actually... I. I, I feel very strongly about the challenges around this. So this is not unkind, right? This is not an easy thing to solve. Um, I have come out publicly in the past uh, in, in favor of um, the digital identity program in India, which landed me not one, not through, but four death threats. Wow. 
but I'm sticking with it. Not because it's perfect, it's not, and it's had breaches and it's had challenges, but because it surfaced a couple of fundamental questions that are absent from this, which is, to your point, Simon, if this is going to work, it has to be universal, at least in a stretchy enough universe. It has to be able to serve a purpose quite widely, not just in a couple of interactions. The second thing is, self-sovereign is great, but beyond my own biometrics, the rest of the information needs to be authenticated by a third party. I think self-sovereign is confusing for that reason, because self-sovereign doesn't suggest you don't do that. Self-sovereign just says it's one part and you follow me but around But actually, the there is a commercial component here and you do do that if you want to take it to another commercial entity because there's no government ownership. Mm. So there is an issue. Of, but there is a third piece, which I think, sorry to, to, to interrupt you, which underlines all of it, which is if you want to do this at scale, you really have to capture the absolute minimum amount of information. Mm -hmm. And when you do it as a pilot trying to prove usefulness, you will, by definition, capture more information than you need. Therefore, your scalability is hampered by both the fact that you start from a commercial point of view, that you limit yourself to a pilot, that you capture potentially more information than you need. I just don't see how you can create something like this without... Um, without a lot of data. So they no, but it's the end authentication. That was, that was the point I was government. trying to make at the beginning. It's the, the end authentication. Where is the entity that is, is validating and authenticating right from the very beginning? So they're partnering with Swisscom. Uh, they're partnering with uh, T-Mobile. They're partnering Guys, they with need IBM. the Ministry of Interior. And they, they've actually worked with a lot of um, by, uh, global governments as well. They just haven't listed them on here. Dubai is moving all of uh, its government services into DLT in some way, shape or form. They're working with many others. They're working with Cisco. They're working with the Swiss government. There are many active pilots with the Sovereign Foundation in progress. So the fact that I continue to be me and you use me as the unique identifier doesn't mean that I stop moving the government at at all. It just means that's one data point of many. I now have additional data points too. And if that one data point is hacked, I now have recoverability because I've got 5, 10, 15, 16, hundreds of other data points. So it's simply saying rather than architecting around the one government identity, I architect around all of your identities and I make you the unique pattern to all of it. So I've still got authentication. I've still got many parties doing identification and I've now got a track record of all of that happening throughout history. So this this is one where we're going to need a few more beers. This is one where we're going to have to go away and have a proper argument about it. Yeah, we're, go um, we're going to have that. The only <laughs> thing to add to this, so Eminem's not the only player looking to promote that the adoption of universal uh, digital identity. So earlier this week, MasterCard and Microsoft also came out setting out plans to build a service that allows individuals to enter, control and share their identity data from their devices. I think it makes complete sense. And mm. under in a GDPR world, why would I carry more data about you than I need to? That's just risk. If because you don't necessarily know what data you're going to need. And people, particularly when designing these services with an old school mentality, capture more information just in case. If you look at any authentication and verification program that a bank, a government, the DVLA, mm. it's always more information than you need. That's your starting point. And when you start trying to abstract away from something that exists... The biggest challenge that we have seen in the biggest experiment of this kind, which is Aadhaar in India, was actually what is the minimum number of information I need? And the answer to that is it depends what you use it for. And that's what I'm driving to. When you have partnerships between commercial entities trying to prove a thing, they're driven by the thing they're trying to solve. When that's not, not just in collaboration with the government, but fully endorsed and driven by a government, 
you lose sight of a whole host of things that our identity See, mechanisms are used for. I don't think that's for. an or. I think it's an and. I think you have to have both. The ideal situation is you have the either Estonian government or the Norwegian government, governments where you have uh, really strong digital identity programs that are well-driven, that are already doing the sort of stuff that Adar was doing, but on a smaller scale, and you do this too, and the combination of those is critical. But Did I'm you gonna just m- call India small? No, no way. And, okay. <laughs> and, and Estonia especially. Alrighty, um, our and finally story this week is about finger payments that are going campus-wide at the Copenhagen Business School. So hopping over to Denmark. Um, finger vein payments technology is to be introduced. Um, the technology named FingoPay uh, no works via an electronic reader which builds a 3D map of the customer's finger veins, generating a natural personal key, thus removing the need for the individual to enter any personal details. FingoPay um, processed more than 12,000 transactions, and the system proved a hit with the students um, and 600 staff. Um, the technology first underwent testing in the UK with WorldPay employees in 2015, and since has been tried at a music venue. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think bi- biometrics is, I mean, I, I find it fascinating. So I, I think if I look at my biometrics for my iPhone, you know, I love the fact I'm one of those annoying people at the tube, basically doing my Apple Pay, taking my face, facial recognition. So I, I think I think it's fantastic. I think it's interesting. I think adoption is going to be the key thing. Yeah, where, Do you know why people love this? Go on. Because finger vein technology would uh, only work if I was alive. If you killed me, I would not have a pulse. That's why people love this. That, but, like, seriously. That, that's I mean, it's why not this, the first thought that came to my head, but okay. Th- so this is the thing... And I'm going to tell the story. Simon worries about these things. So there was about a three-year period where Barclays would roll this out in front of their corporate clients and it had this whole, like, mystique around it, like it was something from Mission Impossible. Mm. Don't worry about having your fingerprints stolen because we know you're a high-flying executive. We've got finger vein technology now. And it's like, they never rolled it out. They never really used it. They did some headlines on it. This is the thing that just won't die. The innovation theatre, which is ironic. Was um, was it Barclays that came out with the heartbeat recognition one? Because oh, okay. uh, again, because that, that was even that, that was Lloyd's. There we go. Yeah. I mean, it's not an unfair point, right? So when I was working in, um, in a larger investment bank, we there was a, an issue, or rather, a project we were going for around um, the payment of benefits to um, the the higher poverty and scale in a sub-Saharan African country. And one of the issues, and one of the ways we were pitching, is how we could do biometrics to authenticate those when you have a largely illiterate population. And one of the biometrics would have been fingerprint. And one of the genuine points that was raised in the meeting is what if somebody dies and they take their finger? How often does that happen? That was the next question, but it was still an issue. (laughs) Like, consider, like, granted, if you really rate yourself as important and or your ultra high net worth, I can see why that's a marginal issue. I don't get why that's mass consumerism. What's the degradation like in terms of the body, though, in terms of decomposing, which is the other thing? You guys, thank God I wasn't there for that part of the conversation. Seriously, you weirdos. Let's take it to a slightly different angle, which is, okay, so you have a 1% instance of dead finger activation. Really? 1%? I'm going to go with 1% because my argument is... Surely the bank I knows expect, though, that this is actually that the individual is dead well, as well. But you you don't necessarily because they're in a heavily financially excluded country where guys, even getting benefits is impossible. In mm. in the UK, on average, it takes on average it takes banks 
more than six months to find out that someone's dead and sometimes it's up to three years and we know that because there's a lot of wasted time and paper sending statements to, to dead people so to your point Ryan no the bank wouldn't necessarily know they're dead because if you lose a loved one letting the bank know that they passed away is not the first yeah, thing you're going to do particularly if there are no assets or there's no urgency, right? So actually, a lot of people are, are lax about that and it is a, a, a pain point for banks. But where I was going with this is, let's assume it is a bigger problem than we imagine. Don't you expect your providers to constantly make those solutions better without needing to be patted on the head about it? So we've had, we've had fingerprints for a while now. Quietly in my head, I had been assuming that they're improving the technology in the background like we do with the technology we provide like I expect every provider to be doing so assuming that was a problem then surely they're fixing it with this and it's not a hurrah so we're doing our job is that, is that like too horrible no, no this just needs to go away I, I sorry I, yeah I think in terms of biometrics for me is fascinating. I can definitely see, obviously, great usage in terms of the future. But then I also look from a payments perspective right now why I use it. I've got my phone on me wherever I go. I don't necessarily take my cards out, but I always pay with that. And I'm happy to use that. It's the one thing that stays with me. So in terms of biometrics, could I see a place for it in the future? Potentially, but I, I just don't know where. Well, well, I could people. activate your phone and put your dead finger on it and, and pay, and now that I can't. Oh, there's a lot of death threats here. Lady, you talked about death threats. Simon, you, you just started talking about that. I've then been told about that. The wow. interesting thing being Ryan dies before his phone does. And I, I'm one of these people that walks around with a permanently uncharged phone. I'm like, I'm on 3%, I'm on 3%. How do you That's live? not the issue. With I, I, it's, it's shocking to many people. Two-year-old iPhone, I imagine. Just knowing that I you just live... just got a new one because I smashed the other one. Oh. Knowing that you live with so little battery gives me anxiety. <laughs> can, can, I, can I say for the record, I really like you, Ryan, and I'm not going to kill you. Thank and God. on that note, uh, that wraps up this week's show. Uh, thanks to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Olivia? Uh, on LinkedIn, or I've been meaning to do better with Twitter. This might actually encourage me to do so, at Livia Benesty. Thank you so much. What about you, Ryan? Uh, Twitter, uh, Ryan underscore EP, or LinkedIn. So When's the EP drop? Uh, EP. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. I you had to. to get one in. You I had, had to. It wouldn't no. be a show without one. Uh, uh, or uh, LinkedIn, Ryan Edwards Pritchard. Hit me up. Thank you, sir. Leader. Um, LinkedIn or Twitter at Leader Glyptis or across the office from you, Simon. Indeed. And you can find me at bit.ly forward slash 11FS2019 uh, and also at SYTaylor um, on Twitter. Uh, and let, let us know what you think of today's stories. Get us at Fintech Insiders or drop us a note podcast at 11FS.com. But for now, thank you for listening. Thank you.